This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. I saw you fall asleep there during the clap there for a second. What? (laughs) 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 We got a DVD gag reel going here. Yeah, just do, just do it. Just do the show. <laughs> Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the gags that you've been meaning to chuckle. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we've got the sleepy giggles. We are uh, we are two tired boys this week. It's been a long week. I went out to Las Vegas and rode about technology for a week and then got sick. I was in rehearsals for a play and then went into technical rehearsals for a play and I need to sleep. My understanding is there's a difference between rehearsal and tech rehearsal is that tech rehearsal you want to hurt yourself. That's <laughs> when it's going poorly, it's it wasn't even the the thing with tech is that you're cramming a lot of work into a, a finite number of days that are far more finite than your average rehearsal days. Like normal rehearsals, like you go into a room, you mess around with the like goofy actor people, and then you leave, and then you go have dinner or whatever. Are they like literally more finite or figuratively more finite? Figurate. Well, they both. feel more finite. They okay. feel more finite because you're getting ready for audiences, and you have less time to change what you want to do. And there are now, like, double the number of people working on your play. Yeah. And they all have very specific sets of skills, like <laughs> Liam Neeson. <laughs> like Liam Neeson, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's just, you're, you're in a dark room for, like, 10 hours of your day. Um, and it just kind of wears on you. Yeah. My deal is, like, I... I have gotten sleep it's for the last like couple days, cas- but I'm it's still like a casino, basically. It's yeah, I'm still <laughs> I'm still reacclimating from West Coast time, mm-hmm. which is miserable. Like West Coast time, you always feel behind. You can wake up at five in the morning and still feel behind. It's the worst. But isn't everyone like super laid back? Like they don't care that you're not behind. when you're there for work <laughs> <laughs> with a bunch of other East Coast people. Um. And then yeah, I got I got a cold, which I still have. You might be able to hear it a little bit. I was more worried for my voice a couple of days ago. Um, but yeah, earlier tonight I made the decision to be the dungeon master for our group's game of Dungeons and Dragons. So I talked for two and a half hours, and uh-huh. now I'm back. You guys are getting the fumes, the voice fumes, vocal well, fumes. You are gonna DM this week's podcast. I uh, am. You're gonna take me on an adventure through what book, Andrew? Uh, Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. Now, have we settled on Gaiman as the pronunciation? If you took, I wonder if you took like all the sections of the podcast where we paused it to discuss pronunciations, if you took them all and made a supercut, 
how many hours long would it be? <laughs> about as long, uh, almost between as long three as this and podcast right now. Be- yeah, between three and four hours. Okay, what do you know about Neil Gaiman? All right, so you, Neil Gaiman. We and just Terry learned Pratchett how to pronounce his name. So. Are both? They're both famous authors, like in their own right. They did a bunch. They they've done a bunch of their own stuff, and they're super famous. So this is like a an authorship supergroup. Sure. I think uh, Neil Gaiman is best known for the Sandman. I think which is a which is a series of graphic novels that he did with uh, DC. Is that right? Yeah, in uh, started in eighty nine or ninety, and then carried through ninety six. Yeah. yeah. So it was uh, the original series was a like it's gathered now in like seven or eight different collections, but he collaborated with a bunch of different authors to tell this one continuous story. And it, if you haven't read it, it's actually it's actually really good. It's I a really not, seminal actually seminal work of uh, of graphic novelism. Well, and he he has gone on record as saying that you know he got started in comics, and I was actually surprised to find that Good Omens Andrew is actually his first novel. Yeah, it was. It it happened. I think a little bit before both of them got as famous as they got. Like um, mm-hmm. Gaiman uh, met Pratchett. I think Gaiman was interviewing him for uh, for another publication. And uh, and they both just started talking and then they gradually expanded this nugget of an idea yeah, that I yeah. think Gaiman had about, about like the end of the world. And they were on the phone and they were like sending floppy disks back and forth to each other because that's how things work before oh, like the internet. The postal service. Yeah. yeah and they, they said like they the edition that I read, the Kindle edition, has some funny little stories about that that each of them wrote about the other and uh and about like the writing of the book. And they say that they tried to to send through a modem like a very early like 1980 something modem part of the book but it ended up taking so long that the post was no about, about the same speed <laughs> or maybe he had forgotten to turn off call waiting and he kept getting phone calls while he yeah was trying right to he's send like his kid like picked up the phone and knocked him off the internet <laughs> i remember trying to download like a 25 megabyte update or something and someone has to use a phone and that's just it that's your day i once tried tried to download like a three minute clip of seinfeld on a dial-up connect it was <laughs> it was a bad idea it wasn't even worth it at all um but i was i was remarked on him being um this being his first novel because he uh has said in interviews that one of the reasons he gravitated towards graphic novels and why they came more easily to him in comics was this was only a few years after Alan Moore, you know, and his like Swamp Thing and Watchmen and, yeah, and right. that kind of setting the groundwork for what we know as the graphic novel, which Gaiman was influential in as well. Yeah. And he's kind of said that no one that's why he felt more comfortable writing there. Like there is there was not thousands of years of established fiction and storytelling mode in this uh medium. Sure. And I think I think both of them agree that Pratchett like wrote more of the yeah. just the raw words, but that uh, they both they both contribute a lot of ideas like the quote um, that I liked was. Uh, we were on the phone to each other every day at least once. If you have an idea during a brainstorming session with another guy, whose idea is it? One guy goes and writes 2,000 words after 30 minutes on the phone. What exactly is the process that's happening? 
Um, and then, and then that's, uh, that's Pratchett talking about it. And he says he did most of the writing because, um, Gaiman was doing Sandman at the time and he yeah. had like, he was on deadline for that. And like one person kind of has to be the person who keeps the project together. Who's like managing the master version of it. And, and yeah. And he, and he also says, uh, I'm a selfish bastard and tried to write ahead to get to the good bits before Neil. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like the idea that there's like an objective story that they were both trying to carve into existence. They were both just racing to get there. <laughs> yeah. But they, I mean, they both sound like they just had a, they had a good time writing this book and they've had a good time, uh, promoting it since, um, yes. Pratchett says of, Gaiman that uh, he really really likes it if you ask him to sign your battered treasured copy of Good Omens that has been dropped in the tub at least once and is now held together with very old yellowing transparent tape you know the one that's funny so that's I mean that's got a specificity to it that means that it actually happened (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to talk about Pratchett in a second about a couple other tidbits about Neil Gaiman I'm glad that this collaboration with Pratchett worked out because one of the other like notable uh incidents on Gaiman's biography is the like protracted legal battle over some characters from Spawn with Todd <laughs> McFarlane like he did one issue of the Spawn comic for McFarlane where he introduced a bunch of characters that would then later become really important in the larger Spawn mythos which mm-hmm. I I talk about it in that with you can hear it in my voice i'm amazed that people care about spawn that much like i'm not trying to like put spawn down i just didn't know that it was as big a thing as it is uh (laughs) and it was that's one of those things where he thought you know from mcfarland's side of the story he was doing work for higher you know creation and then from game inside uh he was you know, he should be credited as creating those characters, even though he was writing another guy's comic. Um, and it's kind of gone back and forth through several courts. I think the most recent ruling actually went against Gaiman, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that this one worked out. I also did not know that Neil Gaiman was a super tight with Tori Amos, apparently. <laughs> uh, Wait, define super tight. Like, he, I think he's her kid's godfather or oh, vice dang. versa. Jeez. Um, and uh, they, she, she has mentioned him in a number of her songs, like like a guy named Neil who like conjures like images and and worlds and things. And then he wrote a character in his book Stardust that's a talking tree that is supposed to be Tori Amos. Like that fits, I guess. Okay. So he's just got okay, Tori Amos. Like I, you, do I, you, I guess. It's like I think we could in a couple, you know, maybe in a few months we just play like six degrees of Neil Gaiman and see who else has worked with him or like or gotten in a protracted legal battle. In a with protracted him. Legal yeah, battle I mean, with I guess him. that's working with somebody in a very loose sort of way. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Terry Pratchett, who was about t- uh, t- ten or eleven 12 years, years older, eleven, 11 years, years older. older. Um, who recently passed away. I mean, away at the, at the, in, when he was oh, alive, he was 11 years old. Yes, older. he just passed away this year. Oh, in, last in, year. Oh, my God, it's 2016. Yeah, you're still writing 2015 or all your podcasts <laughs> checks. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. Uh, but yeah, Terry Pratchett passed away in uh, March of 2015, actually. And that, that follows 
a uh, multi-year, like he, he announced in December 2007 that he was suffering from early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah, people had, uh, he he had a serious stroke a couple of years prior. Yeah, which so his, his health had been, had been unfortunately failing for a while before he died. And then he, yeah, he, he was 66 when he died. Um, but he, and I, that's notable, not just because of, you know, that's just how his life ended, but he donated a lot of money towards Alzheimer's and dementia research. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of his his fans have taken up uh, that mantle, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he He's started, also knighted, yeah. which is cool. I mean, he, I'm always yeah. impressed when anybody is knighted. I love it. He also churned out 41 Discworld books in like 30 years. Dude was prolific. Uh-huh. He puts, he puts the pro in prolific. Terry yeah, Pratchett does. He puts Pierce Anthony to shame. <laughs> now, had you read any any Terry Pratchett before? No, like, have I have never yeah, read any Terry Pratchett. Me neither, which is, is too bad because, I mean, I had read Gaiman before. I'd read most of the Sandman in high school. But uh, Pratchett, I had never come into contact with. And that's too bad because I think he's... Um, for a lot of people, he's a nerdy touchstone who's up there with like Tolkien and and you know some of those other writers. It just depends on, I guess it depends on the kind of nerdery you subscribe to. But he's he had been fully canonized, I think, by the time of his death. Yes, and yeah, what he's known for the most is the Discworld series, which I can't. That's one of those I can't even like wrap my things. head around reading yeah. forty one books. All I know <laughs> is that there it's the. Discworld is on the back of some elephants that are on the back of a turtle walking through space. And apparently, if you believe in stuff, it changes reality. Like, that's as much as I could handle before I got a headache. That's interesting, because there are some elements of that in Good Omens, too. But what what else about Pratchett? Did, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Uh, well, briefly, we could talk about how much he loved orangutans, because apparently he loved orangutans a lot. Okay. Uh, so much so that... Please elaborate. Well, he's a trustee. He was a trustee on the Orangutan Foundation of the United Kingdom. I didn't know... That's... I don't know that orangutans are like... They have their own foundation. Yeah. Or that there's a chapter in the UK that seems very specific. Do you think? Do you think that like orangutans help run it? Like, are they on the board or are they just the beneficiaries? They're the beneficiaries. I don't think that they are a grant making organization. Like the board of orangutans. <laughs> uh, but his, like Discworld and Pratchett fans have their own conventions now, uh, and probably have for a while. But they support that foundation directly, which is kind of cool. Uh, he was, I want to draw that because he attended sci-fi conventions in like the sixties and you mentioned, uh, you know, Tolkien and, and Gaiman cites C.S. Lewis a lot, Narnia, like these are the, the wave of British authors that were like a generation or so removed from the early 20th century greats. Right. And, And that's, I find that interesting. Uh, because it sounds like Pratchett's work, from what I've read about Discworld, is very referential and satirical and parodical of kind of fantasy tropes. While after after maybe like twenty of the forty books, it's it's not always as explicitly satirical. It just then you just start like writing in this world that you created, right? Um, 
But I, I found it fascinating that there were sci-fi conventions in the 60s. That seems like such a 90s thing to me. I mean, it's it's it goes back before the internet. Like, but you needed, I think, a lot of people who like self-identify as as nerds. Yes, that's true. Have that need for affirmation, or like, there's there's that this very specific joy that comes from being able to talk about something with somebody who you've never met, and so that that's like. Maybe I've talked about this on the show before. I don't remember, but I think like the fastest way to get in good with me personally is to have watched all of Star Trek and to have a lot of opinions on it. <laughs> How I've become a real good friend of yours without really watching any Star Trek. Like I've seen Star Trek and I've seen some movies. I do not have a working knowledge. But I'm of... like I don't care about Dota too, so <laughs> Like we've we've each got to have this like one part of our lives that doesn't have anything to do with the other person. I, I suppose. Uh, I think uh, before we go into the book, uh, the other the last thing I want to talk about is Pratchett has kind of gone on the record as disappointed that the world has kind of relegated fantasy and by extension sci-fi off to the side of literary fiction. That it's still genre fiction and not just fiction. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote from that I found in an interview with him. It pisses me off that fantasy is unregarded as a literary form. When you think about it, fantasy is the oldest form of fiction. What were the storytellers of old doing when they talked about the beginnings of the world? They were weaving fantasies. I think there's we've talked about world building as a critical element of fantasy fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think to that... To that end, he has a very good point. Like modern literature is not about is not often about world building. It's, well, and I it's, think if you if you yeah, because I mean the world is just assumed to be our own, and so yes. they have a shortcut that they yes. can rely on that a lot of other like fantasy and genre writers don't don't have that they can take. And I also get why, like, if you devoted your entire life to writing the specific kind of fiction, that you would be upset that people didn't take it more seriously than they did. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but but it also fantasy and and sci-fi also have probably I think a much wider appeal. We see it all the time. It's also look like just like take Star Wars for example, which is of course like there's that that weird nerd paradox that happens with stuff sometimes where we're like especially with Star Wars simultaneously you feel like it's really special and specific to you but then also it's one of the biggest media franchises on the entire planet earth (laughs) you feel you feel a sense of ownership to it that you don't feel if you go to see like silver linings playbook or something (laughs) no that's my movie it speaks directly to me it's for me andrew i think of silver linings playbook because there's that other movie that's out now that's just that again with like all the same people in it silver linings playbook too it's the third one of those the, the gold linings playbook the one in between was the one in the 70s it was 70s linings playbook what was oh that american called? american hustle american which i didn't playbook. see because i couldn't tell from the trailers what it was about other than like actors dressed like the 70s <laughs> the movie the movie <laughs> Tell me about this book because we don't we are in a movie podcast, so let's talk about a book instead. It's Good we could Omens. Turn it into a movie podcast. We just totally rebrand midway through I feel like, this episode. I feel like let's most, rebrand. Most podcasts rebrand 
like 150 something episodes into their run yeah i've seen that before i think that's when they really settle down and start to find what they're actually about. that's when this american life changed their name from your american life it's just about you <laughs> and american life and <laughs> cereal used to be about captain crunch we've made that joke like 300 times <laughs> I'm going to call moratorium on serial homonym jokes on this podcast from now on, please. You are a serial killer because you killed that joke just now. Um, Good job, Adnan. No. What's this book about? This book's about the end of the world. This book's about the end of the world. Oh, and it's called Good Omens, though. That seems counterintuitive. Good Omens, the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter, comma, witch. Um, yeah, it's it's a mostly, uh, for a book that's about the end of the world, it's mostly a comedy. <laughs> okay. Um, and yeah, it's about it's about the end times. So okay. what, what do you need to know? Well, what's, is it after the end times? Is it, it is, is it during running, the ending it is running up to the end times. And actually, the prologue happens at the beginning of the world, which is 6,000 years ago. Interesting. And the dinosaurs are just like a joke that God is playing on humans. Oh, okay. So that's fun. <laughs> so it is uh, so Earth. It takes place on Earth? Yeah, Earth. Our our Earth, more or less, in, in Britain. Okay, of course. And uh, so the two... I, I mean, there are a lot of characters in this book, and many of them are given equal weight. But I guess if I had to name protagonists, I would say that uh, they are uh, the angel and the demon in this scenario. So the angel is named Aziraphale, and the demon is named Crowley. Now, Crowley's name was originally Crawley, and he was the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve with the apple. Uh huh. And then Aziraphale was like the guardian of one of the gates of Eden. Why did he change his name? Because he just didn't like it that much. He didn't think that it seemed like him. And so he changed it to Crowley. <laughs> okay. But the book says that he still wears snakeskin boots and can do cool things with his tongue. <laughs> okay. So Aziraphale and Crowley are doing their master's work on Earth, but in kind of a passive way. And both of them have in common this uh, this sort of awe of humankind because humans can do better and worse stuff to each other than God or Satan could ever think up. Oh, I get it. Okay, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> and so and so they like they like humanity in a way and they also are kind of friends with each other like like Aziraphale is is a like it it gets to the point that the book says where sometimes if one of them is in a spot the he'll do like good or evil stuff for the other one just to like be more efficient cuz they know it's going to happen anyway okay. they're just kind of they're chummy it's an angel and a demon and they're chummy together it, they're they're Ralph and Sam from Looney Tunes they're the wolf and the sheepdog I like suppose. they clock in they do their work yeah and then they clock out and they just they just chat it's, yeah it's fun okay Man, I have not thought about that cartoon forever. That's pretty good. It's a pretty good cartoon. How's it going, Ralph? Good to see you, Sam. <laughs> um, so yeah, they 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 do their jobs basically, and and they just they enjoy existing in the world, 
and they, they do good and they do evil in equal measure, but mostly humanity kind of sorts itself out. <laughs> okay. Uh, good and evil wise. Uh, so Crowley is given the Antichrist, the baby, baby Antichrist. Does it have a name or is it just Antichrist? It does not have a name at the at first. Uh, at first, it is called uh, the Adversary, Destroyer of Kings, Angel of the Bottomless Pit, Great Beast that is called Dragon, Prince of this World, Father of Lies, Spawn of Satan, and Lord of Darkness. And that exact epithet is repeated several times like in its fullness. Oh, no. <laughs> the Adversary, Destroyer of Kings, Angel of the Bottomless Pit. Great beast that is called Dragon, Prince of this World, Father of Life, Spawn of Satan, and Lord of Darkness. Um, Crowley is tasked with taking this baby Satan to a uh, a convent that is actually run by uh, satanic nuns. Oh, good. Who are all like pretty dunderheaded, I guess. Dunderheaded? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not super smart. Um, and so they're they're supposed to switch this one baby out with the Antichrist. Okay, like and, they're just gonna like put it out into the wild, see what happens. Well, the, the the they just want to know where the Antichrist is, and they want it to seem they want it to be like undercover as some actual couple's actual baby. They want to find its forever home, is what you're saying. Yeah, they're trying to find a. They're trying to find Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> is trying to find somebody to adopt the Antichrist. Tori Amos is gonna be so pissed. <laughs> And uh, so they they do some baby switching, and uh, yeah, the Antichrist is eventually named Adam, and uh, couldn't have seen that coming. And we're gonna get back around to him in a minute. But uh, so the the deal with Crowley and Aziraphale is like they both know that the end of the world is supposed to come in like the next ten or eleven years or so, but they like humanity, and so they kind of make a pact to like for all the satanic stuff that's gonna happen to this kid there's going to be good stuff that happens too. And so they're just trying to try and balance it out and avert the end of the world by, uh, by just like evening this kid out and making him not evil. So the, the, the plan and whose whose plan is this? Like this is Crowley and Aziraphale's plan. Now no, God's no, no. plan is to bring about the end of the world. God, okay. So God has decided, well, Satan has decided, but God is like into it because, what? He said it was going to happen and that he was going to win. Wait, that God was going to win. Yeah. Well, because okay. like the Bible. Okay. So he's going to let he's going to let Joe Antichrist into the world, but eventually because it's going to bring about the end of the world and it's going to bring about the prophecies and revelations. But God knows that he's going to win that battle, and so he's fine with like bringing it about. And he's fine with humanity just going away. Yeah. This seems like a raw deal. Yeah, like there's this, there's a whole uh, sequence at the beginning where Aziraphale and uh, Crawley are talking to each other, and um, basically debating like, why, like why would you put this tree with this fruit on it in the middle of the garden and say, don't eat any of that stuff? It's like putting up a big sign. Uh, you've got to admit it's a bit of a pantomime though said crawley i mean pointing out the tree and saying don't touch in big letters not very subtle is it i mean why not put it on top of a high mountain or a long way off makes you wonder what he's really planning best not to speculate really said aziraphale you can't second second guess ineffability i always say there's right and there's wrong if you do wrong when you're told to do right you deserve to be punished (laughs) okay 
So yeah, like Crawley did this thing, but then also Aziraphale gave the Adam and Eve his flaming sword because they looked cold. So like right from the beginning, <laughs> they're sort of subtly second guessing the orders that they're getting from the people who are giving them orders. Okay, so they're going to raise Antichrist as sort of a good kid. Yeah, but they don't because they misidentified the baby. The baby, the baby switch did not go off without a hitch. And babies who didn't, who weren't supposed to get switched, actually got switched. So this kid Adam, who's actually the Antichrist, ends up growing up without any satanic or heavenly influence at all. He just ends up growing up as a normal kid. So is like into alt rock instead of like goth or classical music. I mean, I guess. I don't know. Mostly What's he's in the just middle? like he's into hanging out at the quarry with his friends. <laughs> By the old swimming hole. Yeah, okay. And it's actually, it's kind of a, it's a plot point. Like, this little town that he lives in is very, like, storybook 1950s quaint, where all the kids are always saying stuff like... Gee willikers. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not, it's Main Street, not Podunk? Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. But Um, what happened, where, who did Adam get switched with, though? It's... Not super important because one one of the three babies in this scenario, the book just says, let's imagine that something nice happened to him. And that's it. While strongly implying that something nice is not no. actually what happened oh, to him. Oh, no. And then the first baby, is his name is Warlock. <laughs> and like he has all the satanic and angelic influence, but he is just a normal kid. So it like doesn't matter <laughs> in okay. the end. Um, so, yeah, Adam has these friends... And they're in this little gang and they hang out and they talk all the time and they're just they're just kids. But Adam is still the Antichrist. Uh-huh. And so as he approaches his eleventh his eleventh birthday, which is I guess the appointed hour for the end of the world to come about, he starts reading like these conspiracy theory magazines that are about like uh the city, the lost city of Atlantis, and like Tibetan monks who burrow under the earth. And like little green men who come to say hello and and like weird weather events and stuff. And the stuff that he imagines starts to happen in real life. So like the the city of Atlantis raises up, rises up out of the ocean. There are Tibetan monks who bury around, who burrow underground and like pop up in little tunnels everywhere. Even if, even though they don't really seem to know like why or where they are. Hmm. So it's, it's stuff is happening, but it only makes it only makes as much sense as he prompts it to make like it's only as thought out as he thinks it out oh that's dangerous so when he's saying when he's saying like oh tibetan monks yeah like the interior of the earth must be totally hollow and they just walk around on the inside of it but he doesn't like think about the other influences that that would have on like their society or their like (laughs) physiology or anything okay um, so he's basically reading a bunch of National Enquirers right. and, and like, spawning bat boys left and right. Yeah, inadvertently causing the end of the world with his weird speculation. Oh, and then no. slowly coming to the realization that he's making things change. How does he feel about it? it that's complicated, and I think we'll get back to it later. Because this is, this is the point in the book where there are a, are a lot of things going on. 
like simultaneously. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Now and, a lot of things are going and on. And we're gonna we're gonna have to jump back and forth between a few different perspectives. So the the two other big threads in this book are um uh so there are the four horsemen of the apocalypse who are actually personified, or at least three of them are personified in this book. Uh so um war is a war correspondent who like wherever she goes war follows within days like she can go to a totally peaceful country and within a week it will be completely torn apart by civil war does she Um, is she doing that on purpose she yeah she's evil she's not she's not like a human person who doesn't realize what she's doing she's straight up evil okay as are all the horsemen okay just checking uh famine is a dietitian who in equal parts like encourages people to eat a ton of super empty calories and encourages people to diet themselves to death like famine by potato chips yeah okay um there's this one called pollution who uh apparently took over for pestilence when we invented penicillin oh so pestilence just got sad and left because we figured him out and then there's Death, who's like a big, scary figure who talks in all caps and is not explicitly personified. And Except, I mean, he's just a big, a big menacing figure. And that's like a, a holdover or a reference to, is that the same, supposed to be the same Death from the Discworld yes. books? Yeah, that is right. Okay, because that's a formatting thing that is like apparent in those books as well. Mm-hmm. So what were, what were you talking about, about the Discworld books? And uh, people who can like change the world just by thinking it, thinking stuff. I think uh, that has to do like the magic system of Discworld. The example that I saw is that like if you wanted to turn a cat into a human, you would just like convince the cat that it was human, <laughs> and it would like become so. And then I saw I saw a, a like a parallel aspect in Neil Gaiman's book American Gods where it works from the the system that uh, myths and gods exist because people believe in them. Mm-hmm. Kind of like most Santa Claus movies you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and so like and like their existence or their whether or not they are around at all is tied to whether or not people still believe in them. So both of these authors are interested, I think, it sounds like in the the role that belief plays in creation or yeah yeah, know, yeah rather than just having like a magic system like you know song of ice and fire or or something like that where there's mm-hmm. like spells and things so i don't even know that a song of ice and fire has an internally consistent magic system because uh, it seems true. like magic just happens whenever it needs to but this but not is not so a game much. of thrones yeah. fan cast so i don't need to like get into it our law <laughs> we continue to attempt to rebrand and abort that decision what we episode. call like game of game of moans because i just want to like <laughs> i just want to complain about game of thrones i think that's what i would call it i can't i can't support that name though i mean it could also be the porn version but if we were going to do a porn version i would insist on calling it game of bones <laughs> I don't want to do a porn version of Game of Thrones with you. I'm just. 
I thought we had a good creative relationship going on. I'm well, sorry that you're not following me down this path that I'm walking down. Only if we make it by exchanging like VHS tapes through the mail. Okay. That'll I can go. I can get behind that. Okay. okay. So so tell me about w- how this factors, how this belief magic stuff factors in. Well, into and then, this and book, then other one, than other than Adam. There's one more group of of people who we kind of have to keep track of. Um and there, there are some other even more minor characters. It's just, it's just in an hour long podcast, we probably don't have time to like get into where they fit into the story because they're not like vitally important. Uh, so there's this uh, woman named Anathema Device. Good name, good name. And uh, she is the descendant of Agnes Nutter, who is the woman who you might remember her from the title. She wrote the nice and accurate prophecies of Agnes Nutter. Oh witch. yes, okay. Uh, so she wrote this book of prophecies. It was written in a time when books of prophecies by like Nostra Thomas and whoever were extraordinarily popular, but this one did not sell any copies um, because the prophecies were super specific and mundane, but it was also the only book of prophecies that's ever been written where the prophecies were all true. Huh. And so um, she was burned at the stake for being a witch, but generations of her descendants afterward have passed this like single copy, the single surviving copy of her book down from person to person. And the entire device family, like going way back, has devoted its like life to interpreting the prophecies. And, and usually they're so specific that they can you can only recognize them in retrospect. Okay, so uh, this this is a uh, anathema device talking to uh, Newt Pulsifer, who is uh, so so. Um, Agnes Nutter was burned at the stake by people, and uh, so anathema is Agnes Nutter's descendant, and then Newt is the descendant of the people who burned her at the stake. Okay, so they're kind of having this like chance meeting and and talking and actually being kind of attracted to each other, um, and anathema says. Uh, she managed to come up with the kind of predictions that you can only understand after the thing has happened, said Anathema. Like, do not buy Betamax. That was a prediction for 1972. <laughs> okay. You mean she predicted videotape recorders? No, she just picked up one little fragment of information, said Anathema. That's the point. Most of the time she comes up with such an oblique reference that you can't work it out until it's gone past and then it all slots into place. And she didn't know what was going to be important or not, so it's all a bit hit and miss. Her prediction for November 22nd, 1963 was about a house falling down in King's Lynn. Oh, Newt asked. Newt looked politely blank. President Kennedy was assassinated, said Anathema helpfully, but Dallas didn't exist then, you see, whereas King's Lynn was quite important. Oh, she was generally very good if her descendants were involved. Oh, and she wouldn't know anything about the internal combustion engine. To her, they were just funny chariots. Even my mother thought it referred to an emperor's carriage overturning. You see, it's not enough to know what the future is. You have to know what it means. Agnes was like someone looking at a huge picture down a tiny little tube. She wrote down what seemed like good advice based on what she understood of the tiny little glimpses. Hmm. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think... That Betamax thing is pretty funny. Yeah, it's pretty good. Well, and it's it's written in um like old ye oldie English with, oh, where like okay. all the S's or F's and stuff. That's pretty good. So it's like do not N O T T E buy B U Y E Betamax B E T A M A C K S. Okay, I'm on board with that. <laughs> so what and what are the people doing with these? Uh, predictions again now well it's 
the only copy of the book that survived was in was in the hands of the device family so like not a lot of people were doing a lot of things with them but um as the end of the world approaches because adam is inadvertently making it happen um a lot of these prophecies are increasingly coming true in like rapid fire mm-hmm. uh, uh style i guess okay adam is is realizing what that what he's saying is like changing the world around him and there's like this part of him that is like, yeah, this is this is your deal. This is your destiny. This is what you need to do. <laughs> okay. He's like and 11. He, get, he gets to the point where he's splitting up the world between him and his three friends. Ooh. And then they all get a little scared of him because okay. he's getting pretty scary. And they all try to run away and he tells them to stop. And because he controls the world, they have to stop. But... That's not like what he wanted. That's not what he wants, at least not for his friends. And that that like brings him back to some version of of reality where, like, the point of the apocalypse in this book, at least, like as it's viewed in this book, is to wipe the slate clean. Like the stuff that it's the flood. Is, yeah. yeah, yeah. The stuff that is the stuff that has happened is so bad that we can't like like cutting down the rainforest and doing all and like polluting and all this other stuff. It's so bad that we can't fix it. So we might as well start over. And then Adam comes to this, this understanding or this, like this desire to just work out what we have, like to, to keep on going and like making and like doing the best we can with what we've been given. And is he going to use his powers to do that? Yeah, because he's the one who's supposed to bring about the end of the world, right? So if he doesn't want to do that, oh, then bad stuff happens. Well, not bad stuff, but like stuff does not go according to the divine plan. And so all these different groups uh, eventually converge on this little missile base uh, not too far from where Adam lives. So you've got Adam and his three friends. You've got the four horsemen. You've got Anathema and Newt. And then you've got Aziraphale and uh, Crowley. Mm-hmm. And it looks for a moment like everything is going to go bad. Like the, the, oh, that no. like nuclear destruction is going to completely wipe out the earth because of course that's the form that the apocalypse takes is a nuclear disaster because that's well, just the, yeah. that's the easiest, fastest way to wipe out the entire population of the earth. I think. Yeah. Well, right? I think that is actually true. <laughs> I <don't>. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of other stuff is going down. But that would still be the fastest. But um, so like Adam, like the the mouthpieces of heaven and hell come up and try to talk to Adam and Crowley and Aziraphale realize that like he is he is neither innately good or innately bad. Like he was able to grow up just himself. So he's innately human, which means he has the the capacity for both in a way that he was not supposed to have. He was only supposed to be evil, but then yeah. they were going to try and balance it out, but they messed up. Yes. But then and so still, he got okay. he got balanced out completely by accident. So his are his parents must be like super dope then, like that they are just good at parents. His parents are just like parents. They're like and, Superman's um, parents. They're just like there. To yeah, but I don't they don't like know that he's the antichrist, destroyer of worlds, whatever. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so yeah, they, they've all, they've all gathered there and 
and uh, it's just it's, the end of the world is averted because Adam is like, you know, why can't we, why can't we just, why can't we fix what we've got? Why does it have to happen this way? And, and it's interesting, the theology sort of portrayed by the book is this thing where God says that stuff is going to happen, but he doesn't like actually know. Like, is it maybe part of the plan? Is he like maybe. saying, is it like, is it like he's saying that there aren't as many Tickle Me Elmo's as there are so that people will buy them? Like, like is that what he's doing? That's It's totally possible, but the end of the world was clearly supposed to come about at this hour, and it clearly did not because people messed up. Okay. Basically. Okay. And things are just going to have to continue on as they were. And then there's this, like, there's this part at the end where Satan is actually going to come up, like... Adam's father is actually going to come up and, and make stuff happen. But then what ends up happening is, is his human father drives up and is like, what are you doing? You should go home. You should come home. Okay. So this is, and that's kind of like the, the, that's the story of the book is it's about the, the barely averted end of the world. Okay. I dig that. And it's funny. It is funny. Um, the writing is very sharp and uh, just really, really entertaining to read. Like both of them have a way of turning a phrase that I think uh, you you maybe could hear from the passage I read. But there are just a bunch of like little individual lines. Like uh, yeah, hit me, hit me, rapid um, fire. Anathema, who had picked up witchcraft as she went along, disapproved of liquor in general, but approved of it in her specific case. <laughs> okay, that's good. Uh huh. Um. Let's see here. Well, it's very British. I mean, you know, they they seem of a piece with folks like Douglas Adams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, she was leaning against the door frame like an attractive yawn on legs. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know. I can't. I'm going to try to remember that one. Um, and this is this is Crowley thinking about a particularly like crappy highway that he made and it like makes people upset and mad to like be on the highway. Uh-huh. Um, it was one of Crowley's better achievements and it had taken years to achieve and it involved three computer hacks, two break-ins, one minor bribery. And on one wet night when all else had failed, two hours in a squelchy field, shifting the marker pegs, a few, but occultly incredibly significant meters. When Crowley had watched the first 30 mile long tailback, he'd experienced the lovely warm feeling of a bad job. Well done. <laughs> All right, I like that a lot. Yeah, and uh, so so yeah, the the whole book, like the the interesting thing that it's doing is, I mean, it's calling into question sort of the things that people blindly believe about religion. It calls into question like this view of anything as completely good or completely bad because you, you've got that in Adam, right? Who is just completely human. Yeah. And then you've got that in both Crowley and Aziraphale who are respectively like a demon who is almost good and an angel who is almost bad. Yeah. That's always an interesting way to poke at a rigid theology because you've got like what, if you ascribe any sort of, humanity to those types of characters you have to admit that they can't be all one way like yeah they can't like there there's not an absolute there like even if you're an angel there cannot be an absolute and then like 
later when Crowley like whips out his wings, like angels, I mean, demons are just angels. Like if you, if you look at the, yeah, yeah. The theology, like Lucifer was an angel and all that stuff. Like that's, that's the kind of stuff that is playing around with. So is the book mostly dealing with the like very traditional Christian theology pretty exclusively? Like it's not, uh, or at least, you know, the Western theology rather than, uh, dealing with anything else like yeah more more or less i mean it's the thing that drives the book often is like these little relationships and interactions between characters but as far as the broad strokes yeah it's very like pr- protestant new testament yeah okay sort of sort of western theology yeah what what's up with other humans in the book are there are there notable elements of humanity outside of the things that kind of balance adam there are other humans in the book like like when the four horsemen all get together they are right they're all riding motorcycles and um and there are these people in this like biker gang who take up with them Mm -hmm. yeah so so they're they all meet up in this little diner thing and there are other like actual bikers in the in the diner who like decide to take up with these four horsemen of the apocalypse like these four motorcyclists of the apocalypse and they all like they're riding behind them and eventually they die like they don't actually make it to the apocalypse they're just like a bunch of people but you know in in the way that you have like war and um and pollution and death and whatever they're all trying to decide like what thing of the apocalypse that they'll be okay so they've decided uh grievous bodily harm cruelty to animals things not working properly even after you've given them a good thumping and really cool people (laughs) traveled with them so these are all like the like the bad things that they've decided are descending upon the earth and that's what they're all the embodiment of i like that a lot and they're all just like fighting over what they're going to be called so they're trying to like participate in the theology in the apocalypse yeah okay okay well what else what do you what is so the ending section of the book is kind of like let's take what we got and let's make it work yeah is that what the book's about is it about anything uh, aside from kind of how it's using humor to poke fun to like turn these prophecies and this theology on its on its head yeah, it's is it about anything else or is it is that that's not to say that that's it doesn't have to be about just what you've said, but what is the what is the vibe? What are, can you tell that it was written by two people? Is there a conversation happening between the two authors? No, I don't I really don't think so. And, and and Gaiman and Pratchett both I think would back up that that uh, supposition is just like by the end of it, everything was like all their ideas and all their actual words and all their edits were so mixed up that for the most part, pe- they, neither of them knew like what was theirs and what was the others Okay, anymore. So I, I think this is very much being presented from a single sort of viewpoint. Like it's not, it's not about the authors in conversation with each other or not about like trying to find um, the individual authors, individual story threads in the book. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I really, I really think that the like the worldview that it's espousing to the extent that it's espousing one at all, and like I do sort of hesitate yeah, yeah. sometimes with a comedy to like 
say that it needs to or that it is like trying to make some big grand point about religion. But the point seems to be like, isn't it all a little silly? Sure. Yeah. Like, isn't it worse for everybody to take it so seriously? And you even see that in like the attitudes of the of like Satanists or of like Christians. Like they go and they be a Satanist or they be a Christian for like one hour a week in church. And then they just go home and like act totally the same as each other after Mm -hmm. that. Like it's. It it is pointing, it is pointing at the arbitrary nature of, of how people, of how, of how a number of people weave this into their lives. Like it's kind of, it's, it is as much or as little as you want it to be. Yeah. It is not necessarily objectively something else. Well, and then, and then also like most things are not black and white. Like even, even hell and heaven are not necessarily black and white, good and evil. Like it's not that one, that's like not how it is a lot of the time. And two, that's just not like a healthy or helpful way to, to view the world, I guess is like, yeah. we've all got that capacity for, like I've got, uh, I've got in in me an equal capacity for letting people merge into traffic like smoothly, and for cutting people off because I want to get to a place faster. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Like, I contain multitudes. <laughs> I am legion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It well, and also like in. The that kind of dichotomous view of heaven and hell is like so cinematic too. It's not necessarily even what is part of a lot of belief systems. Like it, it's like become its own canonized thing that has sprung out of a lot of popular storytelling, mm-hmm. which then which then gets fed back into religion in a weird way. And like, that's a whole other can of worms that I'm not prepared to talk about. Well, I mean, I think we can just talk about storytelling and how much more, um, I guess I'd say satisfying it is to have clearly drawn lines. Yes. Certainly. And like good triumphs over evil and to not, to not drag it down into gray area. So like when you, when you do define a good side and a bad side, and there are just people who are good and people who are bad and you can like be on one side or the other, but there's no in between you get stuff like star Wars, which is, which is like a, the better movies in that franchise are like a, a fun, compelling tale. And then on the other side, you've got stuff like game of Thrones and I'm just, I'm purposely bringing back stuff that we mentioned offhand yeah, earlier yeah. to like make it seem intentional. <laughs> um, where you spend so much time in those gray areas that like your audience isn't sure who to root for and you're not sure what you're working toward and like what are you what is your point even and that just sounds like being like in a packed supermarket like, yeah what are just, we even here for guys I let's all just I go away i came to get jelly and now i'm trapped in a line trying I'm, to get checked out for three I'm hours i'm holding 10 it. boxes of spaghetti because there's a coupon i don't need the spaghetti i won't be a better person with the spaghetti i might be a worse person i don't know yet i'm never getting out of here that's that's how it goes <laughs> but yeah i think i think we are we're wired to want to want clearly drawn lines like even if you look back to like world war ii versus like vietnam or something oh totally we're we're 
geared up to want to present that stuff as a battle of good versus evil where where in reality like everything is muddled like we'd firebombed cities and and kept japanese citizens in internment camps like it's not like we were the good guys in world war ii but it's just it's very comforting and satisfying to believe that we were and so we do and i think that that carries over into our fiction too i would not argue with you there thanks but it is interesting that both of these guys drew great inspiration from folks like tolkien uh whose worlds do have that yeah that kind of rigid dichotomy uh i mean that's the advantage that you get when you're building on something right is you can take its conventions and twist them yeah certainly um and those were coming out of a time when like you just said about war ii that rigid dichotomy was uh served served a far greater purpose than perhaps it does now yeah right um in the age of cynicism and irony and newfound earnestness in social media wherever that heck is going on in the world today i don't understand (laughs) I'm ironically earnest. <laughs> Speaking of social media, that thing I said, if you uh, like our show and you want to reach out to us uh, using your favorite social channels, you can do so at facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. I want to give a thanks to Eric and Sarah and Albie and Ray and Kathy and Emily and Karen and Tony and Cogline and Matt and Turnbull85 and Jillian and Graham and <laughs> Cat Payne and Mailer Tay and Lee, Stephanie, Dana, Renee, Melissa, Sean, Sophie, Bunbury, uh, for all all of those folks uh, reached out to us in the past week. Oh, this is getting long. I like I it. I know. Uh, we also got some nice emails at overduepod at gmail.com. Uh, I want to thank Heather, who sent us a nice note from Canada about how much Canada loves England. And we got a really nice note from Samantha, who's been supporting the show for a while. Uh, Andrew, you should tell us about our website where our Patreon page is because we read this book. You read this book uh, because of Kara, actually, um, who recommended it to us through our Patreon project. What's up with that? Yeah, so if if you want to find more out about any of the other stuff that we're doing, you can go to OverduePodcast.com. Up there, we've got links to iTunes and RSS and to our Stitcher feed. Uh, You can use any of those to subscribe to the show and get new episodes when they post on Mondays. Um, If you subscribe on iTunes, do remember to rate and review the show. We keep getting new ratings and reviews every week, and we continue to text each other about every individual one. So just know that if you do that, it is very noticed and very appreciated. Um, We also on that page have links to our Patreon page, which Craig mentioned. It's a way to uh, support the show financially in kind of an ongoing manner, pay for our book buying costs, pay for... Um, investment in equipment and in like expanding the show. Uh, you can f- find out more about that at patreon.com slash overdue pod. Uh, we also have links up to our uh, podcast network, HeadGum. Um, if you go to headgum.com, you can find more out about the other shows on the network, including uh, the comedy advice podcast, Wish I Were You, uh, Twinovation, uh, several different shows about uh, about old TV shows, so Gilmore Guys, um, uh on the lanai or whatever it's called the golden girls one the and, best of uh, friends best of friends podcast and and a lot of others and uh, i guess i should also plug um every once in a while the tv podcast that i do with friends of the show uh, oh, margaret yeah. h willison and katherine van arendonk it's called appointment television uh we got mentioned by margaret on uh npr's pop culture happy hour recently and it's 
resulted in a nice little nice little spike of listeners. It's very gratifying. So if you like me and the dumb stuff I say and also TV, that's the podcast for you. Yeah, because we're not rebranding this one, tell you that much. No, it's we've tried and it is not happening. Uh, if one last thing, if you like uh, want to like read along with the books that we're doing, and then you're also like an avid reader and you use Goodreads, uh, listener Julie started a group for us over at Goodreads. You just search for the Overdue Podcast or something. Yeah. I don't know, we've also got it. links up on Twitter and Facebook, and I I I want to add that to the site. We're up at like, we're, you know, we got a good chunk of people. We only really plugged it in earnest a week or two ago. People are already talking about movie novelizations. It's a great time. Yeah, go go start more conversations over there. Don't let us monopolize the conversation just because we're the ones with the podcast. (laughs) Use our platform to have your own conversations. That's what engagement is all about. Charlie Brown. Who hashtag are you right now? I don't know. I'm hashtag tired as a butt. (laughs) Let's get that trending. Get out of here. All right. Craig, what are you reading next week? <laughs> I'm reading A Canticle for Leverwitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. I promise it doesn't sound as weird as I just pronounced those words. All right. Cool. That sounds fun. Uh, all right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. We love you very much. Um, have a great week. <laughs> and until next, until next time, try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.